I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. This is the second in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame series. Uh, we are covering the stories in this here book published in 1970. If you want details about how the stories were selected, we covered that very intensely in the first episode on Stanley Weinbaum's Martian Odyssey. So you can go back and see that. I'll be collecting these episodes in a single YouTube playlist. Of course, the audio is available on all podcatchers. Um, but today I have uh, a panel of experts that are going to talk to you about um, one of the foundational stories of science fiction, not just because it's in here, but we're going to talk about the impact of John W. Campbell and his story, Twilight. Um, so we're going to get a little bit into the history of the dude who wrote it and um, the issue of the magazine and then um, on the story itself. My guest today, um, just uh, I know I said that James uh, on social media that James Reich was going to be here, author James Reich. He was not able to make it at the last moment, uh, but I do want to put a shout out for his uh, Mars novel. A song my enemies sing which is really incredible and he has a new book called the moth for stars that just came out so shout out to james and those books he'll be here later on other episodes of the series and if you uh really like he and i covered um barry maltzberg's beyond apollo on the dickheads podcast and that's a really great episode so i recommend um james's point of view there joining me today um i have two guests kate hefner is a postgraduate researcher of science fiction and gender studies um, at the School of History at the University of Kent in England. And she's finishing up uh, back home in Iowa, uh, her postdoctorate. Uh, she was awarded the Peter Nichols International Prize for Best Essay in Science Fiction for her research on feminist science fiction fan cultures. So, Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, so, uh, of course, considering um, the way uh, we kind of have reevaluated uh, John W. Campbell, I thought uh, you were a perfect person to have on this panel. Uh, also, the man who literally wrote the book on John W. Campbell, uh, Astounding by Alec Neville Lee. Alec is a longtime uh, science fiction writer and historian, but I think, um, and he also just recently wrote a book on Buckminster Fuller. And, uh, but obviously we're having him here today to talk about John W. Campbell. And when we did our series on 30s science fiction, uh, we covered on this podcast, we covered uh, Clifford Smack's Rule 18. So you can hear that. But uh, specifically on that show, Alec said, John W. Campbell is the one I really like to talk about. So I had to 
So immediately when I saw this uh, in the table of contents and I knew I wanted to do this series, Alec was bound to be here. So Alec, welcome back to Postcards from a Dying World. Um, thanks. As I mentioned earlier, I am delighted to be back here and uh, I will take an excuse to talk about um, Campbell's story. Yeah. Um, well, and just uh, the, the dude himself, John W. Campbell and his importance. So let's start off with that. Let's start off with who John W. Campbell was. Um, one of the most interesting things, like his other, I think the, 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 the two pillars of his fiction are this and who goes there. And I think his backstory of having a mom who was a twin, uh, you know, plays much more of a role in who goes there than, than Twilight. But um, what can we start with you, Alex? What do you know about uh, John W. Campbell's childhood and how he ended up becoming interested in genre fiction? Because I, I do think that that's a huge part of the story. Sure. Um, so Campbell was uh, born in 1910. And, um, you know, he was one of the uh, sort of classic cases of a future science fiction writer and editor who felt like an outsider growing up. Um, you know, he, he felt set apart by his intelligence, which was undeniable. Um, he was socially awkward, like many of these people were. And, and again, you know, he was not, he was, he was privileged, right? He was, he was not coming from, you know, the kind of background where he had to face discrimination. He was a, you know, white Protestant male, you know, in the growing up in the 1920s. Um, but, you know, he certainly felt like, like an um, outcast when he was growing up. And I think like a lot of people, he found science fiction to be a genre where the qualities that set him apart from his peers um, were actually uh, advantages, right? Um, the sort of quintessential competent man hero, you know, uh, or at least like the heroic figure of the pulps during this period is like, you know, usually a white male, with a background in science who can build things right and solve problems and, and that's kind of how Campbell saw himself uh from an early stage uh you know the, the one thing about him that I think is crucial to understanding his career is that he wanted to be a great inventor you know he was someone who had a very high um opinion of his own intelligence and skills you know at, at building things and um you know like initially that was kind of where he saw himself going and it's not until he uh you know like he had to drop out of college you know for various reasons um uh, he was he was at MIT, dropped out, went to Duke, got his his uh, bachelor's degree in physics, um, but you know never quite became the uh, inventor he wanted to be. But then when he was given the chance, you know, a bit after the period we're t talking about to um, run astounding science fiction, he kind of turned that into an outlet for those ambitions. You know, he he said, "I'm going to turn science fiction from a pulp genre into this machine for generating ideas and that I have access to these writers, these fans and my own talents, you know, to kind of start this conversation about how the future will look, you know, obviously, but also like maybe we'll make a discovery that will actually have an impact on the real world." And and that's definitely like something that he wanted and pursued until the day he died. Well, and we see parts of like his upbringing and his background that affects a, a lot of these stories these early stories that were his fiction i mean obviously with the who goes there and uh, you don't know who's real he had this situation with his mom and his aunt who were identical twins who would who had very different personalities but looked exactly the same and they would trick him sometimes and like you know for a child that had to be a really imprinting thing now with twilight we kind of see like the imprinting of the scientific background and and the science thinking from the very beginning that he and we'll get into the story later but it's just such a far reaching story for the time 
And one of the things that we talked about in the first episode of this series with the Martian Odyssey is there was science fiction before that story and there was science fiction after, right? And I think one of the things about Twilight is that you could argue that who goes there has a little bit more staying power, but Twilight is a revolutionary story for science fiction. And I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm wondering how both of you feel about now having revisited this, if you, if you agree that, I mean, we know it's role is in the hall of fame, but when I reread it this time, I just could really feel the revolution and the shaking of the ground in science fiction as you're reading it, Kate. How did you feel reread? Have you read the story before or was this the first time? So this was my uh, first time uh, reading the story. Uh, one thing that I was um, kind of drawn to is thinking through what per this particular story means in like our particular current historical moment, thinking through um, automation and the ways that, you know, we have language models that are, you know, building um, and, and creating sort of um, different uses of language and writing. Um, the mechanization, um, at least for me, um, I'm gonna connect this to some of uh, Judith Merrill's work. I was on a podcast with you uh, prior. Yeah. We, had the, we had the Judith Merrill um, podcast uh, episode. And, and she's in this book as well. She's, yeah. Yeah. So for, for me, thinking through Only a Mother, Judith Merrill's um, short story, which has a lot of like uh, tones of automation, of looking at like a fully mechanized domestic space um, within the house um, and thinking through um, sort of like the same sort of um, science fictional trope of automation and, and replacing um, essentially human things um, in Twilight. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really cool and important thing. Um, and the connection, Judith Merrill, obviously, is like one of the titans of, of uh, well, and she was a part of the fan community as early as the 30s, too. So she was was reading this stuff at the time at, as a Futurian. Now, um, Alec, as far as the revolution, we'll come back. We'll get more seriously into the story later. But, um, but, but just starting off and we'll get more into to Campbell as a person but the the revol the revolution of this story like and its importance like how do how do you view it as a person who researched th this this guy in this era in general so we'll, we'll talk more about twilight obviously in a little bit but the, the, the two things that i think are, are interesting about the story um one is the tone, which is, you know, it's kind of elegiac, it's melancholy, it's 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 a little bit, you know, darker and more evocative than, you know, the average pulp story. And the other is the attitude towards technology, right? There's ambivalence, right? That maybe technology can be incredible, but it can also cost us things about our humanity that are precious, like the curiosity. And what I find really interesting is that, you know, Campbell is pushing back against sort of a more uncritical view of technology, you know, that's more celebratory, that's saying, look at these amazing things we can do, you know, look at these spaceships, look at, you know, these these gadgets that, you know, these stories are filled with. But these are stories that he's also writing, that Campbell is writing at the same time at, while he's writing Twilight, okay? Um, one, one crucial point that I want to make uh, now is that Twilight was published under a pen name, all right, uh, as Don A. Stewart. 
and I'll kind of maybe later on explain where that name comes from. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, so so we'll, we'll 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 put a pin on that for now. But you know, it's it's interesting that you know Campbell writes these stories under his own name, John W. Campbell, that are uh, what are called super science stories that are these sort of like galactic, you know, sort of universe spanning, uh, you know, pulpy stories with again these very stereotypical heroes who deploy entire moons as weapons and, you know, commit genocide on a vast scale, you know, and, and you know, it, it's like, it's very, it, it, you know, I mean, these stories don't hold up as well, but they were very popular at the time, you know, like Campbell was one of the two most well-regarded authors, you know, during this period based on those stories, which I think have not held up very well. But then at the same time, like literally simultaneously, he is writing under the Donna Stewart name, um, much more ambitious work that is questioning these these premises, right? And, and you know, the, the last thing I'll say about, that tie it back to his autobiography is that you know his parents were difficult, right? They're kind of real pieces of work. But you look at his uh, stories, and my theory is that the super science stories were written to please his father, who was an engineer, who was kind of like a like a hard tech kind of guy, and these are the kinds of stories that he would have liked. And the Donnie Stewart stories come out of his ambivalence toward his mother, who made him question things and, you know, um, forced him to uh, think in certain ways. I, I would say that are are visible in in, in those in this like sort of parallel track of, of the fiction he was writing. So so to the extent that Campbell's biography is helpful, you know, in thinking about this stuff, you know, it, it is true that he is someone where there are these, there are these contrasts, you know, they're, they're incredibly, you know, it, it's hard to explain how some of these stories could have been written by the same person. And while I think there's some other explanations, I think the one you can trace back to his childhood is actually a legitimate reading that, that you know, these are two sides of his personality that he had to develop right. um, and, and, you know, response to his parents. Well, and it, you know, it's, it's fascinating because the Donna Stewart stories uh, consistently the 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 ones that are legendary or the ones that really had an impact were the Donna Stewart stories, and um, they're the ones that uh, who goes there in Twilight definitely for example like our stories that hold up pretty well considering I mean they have little things here and there, but the Donna Stewart stories you know and look you know it, it, this is not a a thing that's uh, original just to Campbell. Uh, Look at Richard Bachman and Stephen King. You know, uh, Stephen King always says that Richard Bachman writes differently than Stephen King does. And uh, speaking of somebody who just tried to, or, well, and just finished writing a novel um, where I was trying to write with the Philip K. Dick formula and trying to kind of mimic his voice, uh, I'd never done that before. I'd never ever written anything at that length that I wasn't trying to write as myself, right? And uh, so I, I, I can understand that Don A. Stewart was a different personality to him and a different voice. And um, um, but what do you guys think is like the, the, the main factors that really make a difference between like Campbell and Stewart? I mean, I, I guess this is more Alec. This is more your expertise that we're leaning on here. You yeah. Know. So I, I will, you know, kind of, you know, add one thing to that, which is that, you know, I have a copy of a book called The Best of John W. Campbell, which was a, another anthology I, I read. And, um, you know, it's it's yeah, almost all that. it's almost all Stuart stories. All right. So you look at the table of contents and the only uh, story that he published under his own name is the first one called The Last Evolution, which, which is a pretty good story. But every other story is a Donnie Stewart story. So even he knew that these were the stories that would endure. Um, so the obvious uh, factor here. All right is uh his wife 
All right. So so Campbell married in 1931. And at that point, he'd already been writing stories for years. He, he you know, he'd been writing stories since he was an MIT Same undergraduate. Year he washed out at MIT, right? Yes. That he got married. Yeah. yeah. So so he he'd already established himself as a writer under the Campbell name at that point. All right. And he marries Donia Stewart. All right. Or at least that, that, that's the name that she went by. OK, so so clearly Don A. Stewart at, at minimum is a tribute to his wife. OK, Um who, you know, I mean, I, I could talk about her for, for hours. Um, you know, she was clearly a, like an exceptional person. All right. And um, we know that she typed his stories, that she was kind of his sounding board for ideas, you know, that he would bounce premises off her and she would give him feedback, you know, definitely give him feedback on drafts that, 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 you know, is, is established beyond any doubt. What I find interesting to contemplate is did her, that collaboration go beyond that? You know, did did right. she? I, I don't think it's. It wouldn't be accurate to say that she wrote the stories, but one parallel is Robert Heinlein and his first wife, or well, actually second wife, but his wife at the time, Leslin, um, was a similar figure, and we actually know a bit more about them. You know, the way they would sort of talk out plots and 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 stories together at home before he wrote them, and you know, as he points out, you know, he did all the writing. Heinlein did all the writing, but he credits Leslin almost as a co-author, right? And and I do think that something similar is going on here. Like the the um sort of the timing is very suggestive, right? That that these stories start to come out of Campbell after his marriage. And at the very least, I would say that um I doubt that Donia found those super science stories especially interesting. Um when she became kind of his first reader, I think it inclined him for these stories to, to go in a certain direction. And he was still writing the super science stories. You know, it's not a question of him evolving beyond the old mode. He he's engaging in both mold, modes simultaneously. But because of Donia, and also because of F. Orland Tremaine, his editor at Astounding, it's the Stewart stories that get published and that that sort of get an audience. Okay, so there is this very interesting confluence of factors where Campbell, you know, has a reader and an editor who are both encouraging him to go in these directions. Well, and he also she played a role in the managing of the magazine once he became editor, right? She was very, very involved, right? Yes. So, so this is also interesting. So, I, I think we're we're going to be talking mostly about Campbell as, as a writer, right? But then later on, he becomes editor of Astounding, and we absolutely know that in the early days, Donia was his um, slush pile reader. You know, she talks about reading tons of stories until her eyes are you know falling out of her head. You know, most of which are, are terrible. But he was, you know, she was kind of his uncredited assistant, at least in the early days. And um, I think remained, you know, up to a certain point, an important force at the magazine. Um, I, I'll just like kind of digress for one second to share my favorite story from Astounding, which is after Pearl Harbor, Heinlein was trying to convince Campbell to sign up. Um, and Campbell was reluctant because he says, I don't want to leave this magazine behind. And Heinlein essentially says, well, I think Donia and Leslin could do as good a job or better as you could running the magazine in, in your absence, which um, it didn't actually happen. But it, it, to me, it speaks volumes about the roles that they played in their husband's careers and kind of the um, impact they, they must have had that is kind of invisible, you know, but but if you look, you know, closely enough at the letters and sort of people's memories of that time, it's undeniable that, you know, she played a big role. Right, which, and that brings me to Kate, and Kate, you and I are going to talk more in the back half of this episode because we're getting Alex expertise, but um, uh, the, the thing about this part is um, 
the role that women played from the beginning in the science fiction community and in the and you know you had a couple you had judith merrill who was very vocal and um you had a couple that were out front you know judith merrill obviously eventually challenged campbell and said like you're gonna publish my stories right we we've uh, we'll come back to that on her episode but what is it you think this this relationship that Campbell has says about how women were a part of the community at the time. Yeah, so that's a really um, tricky and, th and thorny question thinking through that, because not only in, in this particular issue um, of Astounding, we have Donna Stewart, um, but we also have um, the uh, third of the Skylark stories, if I'm if I uh, am remembering correctly, I'm going to pull this up just yeah, and thinking through like the sort of hidden hands um, and editorial work that a lot of women did, um, and they were not only um, they were never really seen as um, contributors or writers or fans. A lot of times in the, in their own sort of um, in their own right. So um, in right now we're looking at the astounding stories, the November nineteen thirty four issue. Um, and in this particular issue, you have uh, the Skylark of Valerian, which is um, part four of the, um, the Skylark series, right? And uh, Edward E. Smith um, also had, um, he worked with one of his friend's wife on that particular story to kind of like uh, dress it up in a certain way. Um, and it's the combination of both romance aspects of the, of, of the romance genre, Western um, aspects of the Western genre, and, and you know, sort of creating um, a new type of science fiction story, um, dare I use Gernsback's language. Um, so yeah, so thinking through this, there are a lot of women who, you know, adopted um, pen names, and who, um, you know, wrote in with, with masculine uh, pen names like, you know, prior to um, some of the 1970s science fiction feminist movements. Um, so uh, it's a really thorny and tricky uh, piece of science fiction history. Um, I know that there's work by Justine Lara Ballestier, who wrote Battle of the Sexes in Science Fiction, um, and Davin, uh, Partners in Wonder, um, who've gone through and looked at the recovery work um, of women, especially in this period, Professor Lisa Yazik as well. Um, so it's interesting to think through the ways that, um, uh, you know, like the help of, of a wife in the creation of science fiction, because you, I'm thinking through um, the ways in which um, that could be sort of negative with John Campbell, like, uh, and I'll refer um, to you folks on on that, like later on when uh, he kind of loses um, his uh, tracks. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and we're about to get into the the issue, but also, I mean, even when it, one of my favorite stories about that is how uh, even though Lovecraft wrote to Kuttner and introduced C.L. Moore as Kathy Moore. He still right. like Hutner still his first letter back said Mr. Moore at the top of the letter, even though in the letter it clearly said Kathy Moore. So, um, you know, 
you know, which is funny because when your when your whole marriage was introduced to was started by a letter from H.P. Lovecraft, it's just an interesting thing there too. But uh, you know, I I find fascinating. Um, you know, this hidden hand is is totally fascinating. A part of of this era because uh, you know that that plays a role too. Is far far back. I mean, Philip K. Dick also has that situation when a lot of his best masterpieces happened during his marriage to Anne. Um, you know, and even though he wrote really good work along all the divorces and marriages and everything, uh, you know, Man in the High Castle, Martian Time Slip, uh, you know, a lot of those really good books got first reading by Anne Dick. So like that carries on for a long time. And, uh, you know, vice versa, too, I'm sure, like, you know, um, you know, C.L. Moore, I'm sure got a lot of help from Henry Kuttner, you know, just by the osmosis of being together and being around each other. So, um, but yeah, let's move on to the issue. Let's let's get into, I'll share for those of you uh, watching on YouTube, um, if you're listening to audio, it's fine, but this is the time where we're going to be looking at the actual um, issue here. Um, and let's look at the table of contents first and I'll try to zoom it in a little bit. I do love this show and tell aspect of it. Like, all right, folks, how many <laughs> of you have seen like a pulp magazine? Like I've touched it, can yeah. smell it, like feel all the gnarly bits um, of it, so. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, there's some really interesting stuff in this issue. So let's talk first about this was 89 years ago, which is a long time. Uh, you know, almost nine decades ago. Uh, this was the November 1934 issue. And so that means next November will be the 90th anniversary of this story. So um, I don't know, maybe we got to celebrate uh, in November. Uh, this was the same month that Winston Churchill first gave a speech warning that Germany was rearming, uh, quote, secretly, illegally, and rapidly. Um, a team of American baseball stars, including Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, arrived in Japan to play a tour of exhibition games. That's a pretty big sign of how long ago it was. And retired U.S. Marine Corps officer Smedley Butler uh, caused an uproar when he gave a testimony to the House of Representatives on the Un-America activities. Many of you will recognize that story from Rachel Maddow's now new current podcast. Uh, I think it's called Prequel. Well, it's about uh, the first attempt at a, a fascist overthrow of the United States, which, um, you know, uh, eventually uh, Sinclair Lewis would write about in It Can Happen Here, right? which was a classic of that era, which at the time was speculative fiction, but of course now becomes alternate history if you read it now. Uh, but 1934, interesting stuff. So um, uh, Alex, starting with you and then uh, Kate, uh, what are your thoughts looking at this table of contents? Uh, Alec, I know you got lots of thoughts when we do this part of the show. I enjoy listening to you talk about it. Oh, good. Well, well, here I go. Um, so so the one thing I want to mention is that, you know, this is a, a Tremaine issue. Okay, so F. Orlin Tremaine was the editor of Astounding uh, at this point, and he's actually the second editor. So it was funded by a guy named Perry Bates, and then Tremaine and then Campbell takes over. 
the Harry Bates era is not that great. I mean, Isaac Asimov famously said there's not a single story that that whole run that, that is worth remembering. Um, but Tremaine is underrated. Okay, he did great things for Astounding. He kind of like laid the groundwork for Campbell. Um, Campbell really deserves credit for inaugurating like the Golden Age, but you know he he was building on what Tremaine had already done. Okay, Tremaine was not necessarily a science fiction fan, but he was a professional. He was a good editor. He understood how to build a magazine, and so he goes after authors like Campbell and and Doc Smith. He uh, builds you know sort of this community of readers in the letters column. And he does like really interesting stuff. Like he publishes, um, I, I would say, you know, this is, I can't remember if this is before or after this issue, but, you know, he publishes At the Mountains of Madness by, by H.P. Lovecraft, which is probably the only story from that period that most casual fans will have read. Um, he publishes stuff like uh, Low by Charles Fort, which is actually uh, serialized in this issue, which is a really interesting, weird book that, um, again, it's like, I mean, I think about this sometimes. It's like, what what would it be like to be a reader going to a newsstand, you know, in 1934? And I forget what the cover price was, but you know, ten cents or um, like a like a or twenty cents, right? So for twenty cents, you can buy this this issue, and it has Twilight by Donna Stewart, which is you know a very important story. It's got a ton of material from Charles Fort's Low. I mean, it's it's a great deal. You know, it, it's 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 such a it's so mind blowing to me that you could just like kind of wander into it like a drugstore and, and buy this magazine. 40 cents. And I think a lot of 40 cents. It says at the bottom there with okay. a $2 yes, right. yearly subscription, $2 a year. Right. And, um, and yeah. And by the time Tremaine was, was editor, you know, a lot of that stuff had been established. Um, so I, I guess my, my one big takeaway with the, the issue here is that Tremaine sometimes gets dropped from the history of science fiction. Um, but he's someone who deserves a lot of credit for what he did with this magazine. Yeah. Just uh, for buying, um, uh, at the Mountains of Madness, too, because that was actually rejected by Weird Tales already. Um, yeah, yeah, and he famously, I think it, it, it's um, cut a bit. It's like not the full version of that story. Um, yeah. And um, so I think I think Lovecraft purists would say, oh, you know, yeah, he should he have published the it. full thing. But it's still stunning, right? It, it's an incredible story, you know, clearly influenced who goes there, I think. Um, he published, uh, the other one is uh, The Shot Out of Time, you know, and, and again, th these are these are fantastic stories that have held up, you know, regardless of your thoughts about Lovecraft himself, you know, putting them out there in the early 30s was a big deal. Okay, so uh, Kate, what are your thoughts looking at this uh, awesome table of contents? You already mentioned uh, E. E. Smith a little bit, which was on my list of things to talk about when I get there, but what, what are your thoughts on this issue? So, um, I guess, uh, thank you so much for like um, laying out all the groundwork um, before. So now I can go in and just um, talk about sort of the weird things um, with the title page or with the table of con contents. Um, thinking through like the history of science and the history of science and technology studies, sociology of science and um, using that sort of lens to look at this table of contents, you see, you know, some really interesting um, folks who are contributing to a dialogue about science. So you have Fort, um, so, you know, thinking through the fan clubs of the 14 fan clubs and folks that were interested in some of the uh, mythos of um, Charles Fort um, and having low again, um, like, as he said, like um, prior um, thinking through that sort of material um, on science and spirituality. Um, also thinking through um, how this issue 
um, is five years before the 1939 World's Fair um, in New York and the first science fiction world convention, but thinking through how mechanization, automation, um, and um, yeah, like machinery is already such a giant um, uh, sort of prophe prophecy or precursor um, to what, what will come um, forward. I guess um, I will say that like, I don't see any women listed in the table of contents, um, which is like a duh there. I, I mean, I don't know, that's that that's yeah. obvious, you know, in, in looking through that. So um, I'd be interested to know, uh, learn more about um, Tremaine's relationship with women authors at the time. Um, and maybe that's something um, that Ella can speak on. Um, yeah. That's a great question. If you give me a minute, I can I can look into it. Um, I have a bunch of notes about this. Well, your, uh, um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. You do that, I'll talk about some of the other authors. Okay. Yeah. Are... I, I don't know the answer offhand, but that, that, that's a great question. Yeah. So um, this uh, variant, uh, thought variant novel, The Mole Pirate, is by Murray Leinster, who is a, uh, I have one of his books here, The Forgotten Planet. Um, Mary Leinster is a very important figure in 30s uh, science fiction, but uh, was active throughout his life, like long into the 60s. And um, if you are one of those people who's constantly looking through used bookstore shelves for science fiction, you're going to see a lot of Mary Leinster out there um, because he was uh, very popular back in the day. And so... Um, I kind of thumbed through this story a little bit, but I didn't read it. Um, but his uh, the Forgotten Planet uh, is kind of like the classic work that um, it has to do with like giant insects and a colony world. And I read it back in the day. It's very good. Um, other stuff that appears in here, I don't know Nat Schrader or uh, is it Schrader? Don't know him. But uh, The Lost Planet by Frank uh, Belknap Long. Uh, Frank Belknap Long uh, Jr. was a uh, Lovecraftian mythos writer, one of the early acolytes of Lovecraft, like when he was still alive and continued to write mythos fiction long after Lovecraft was gone. But uh, he's an important figure in mythos fiction. We talked a lot about him in the uh, podcast on At the Mountains of Madness during my 1930s science fiction series, um, which this episode will be linked on, on that list as well. But in the At the Mountains of Madness episode, we talked a lot about uh, Frank uh, Belknap Long because he also had a story in the same issue as the first part of the serial for At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, the Machine from Ganymede there by Raymond Z. Gallon, I admit, um, I was not familiar with him, but a couple weeks ago, I was I got this book at uh, Bart's Books in Ojai, California, <laughs> and um, yeah, I saw that according to the back of this book that he was a mainstay of 1920s science fiction. So, but he wrote well into the 70s, and I cannot say I know his work, but I am going to be learning it soon because I got this book. And of course, Kate brought up E.E. Uh, e. Smith, who was the most popular science fiction author of the 20s and 30s, pretty much. Uh, his uh, Lensman series was uh, extremely well known. Um, and then I have something to comment on from the letters section. Unless, Alec, did you have something? Did you find anything on, on uh, Tremaine? 
Yeah, so so just a quick cursory look at my notes. Um, so Tremaine did publish uh, Catherine Moore. Um, I see two stories just like skimming through these first couple of years. And uh, he refers to her as, uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, she is an outstanding author of The Weird Story. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's unclear to me, um, it may have been published as C.L. Moore. All right. So yeah. it's unclear to me how many people would have known that she was a woman. Um, and, you know, she's the exception, right? Like, um, I'm just kind of skimming through my notes on these issues. I, I, you're right. I, I don't see a lot of uh, women's names here. Yeah. And C.L. Moore, we should clarify, uh, she did not use C.L. Moore to hide her gender. She did it to hide the fact that she was moonlighting um, during the Depression, because during the Depression, you a lot of people would say, if, oh, if you have another job, well, then you don't need this one. And then you would a lot of times get fired from uh, from jobs uh, if you were caught moonlighting. So she was very worried about that. And by the way, she's from Indiana and I had the experience. I went to the hotel that now exists in the building that housed her insurance agency and the mail slot where she dropped her submissions in the mail is still on the wall in the lobby of the hotel. So if you ever go to Indianapolis, you can go and visit the mail slot that Catherine Moore used to send her stories to weird stories. So uh, weird tales. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, one last thing, I, I did see something in my notes, uh, a letter from a reader uh, who says that he thinks that H.P. Lovecraft's turn to science fiction will be as great as C.L. Moore's. All right. So I, I think that that's a it's a indication of the, um, um, you know, she, she was she was popular. You know, she was someone that people respected and, and looked forward to, to reading her stuff. Oh, and two last things I want to add about Murray Leinster and E.E. Um, uh, e. Smith. E.E. E. Smith was a food engineer. Who, who specialized in mass producing donuts, which is really weird and interesting. And Murray Leinster created special the, the rear projection for special effects. Um, so two inventors, which is really weird and cool. All right, before yeah. we get to- in Yeah, um, just a quick note. If you read my book, Astounding, there is some good stuff about um, Will Jenkins, the guy who wrote his Murray Leinster, inventing cool stuff during World War II. Right. Now, uh, one thing I do want to point out from the letters, which you always have to read when you look at these, because the Twitter or the Internet discourse of the time ah, here. All right. Um, there is a really important letter in this issue. Did you guys happen to check that out? It's OK if you didn't, but. Uh, I would I would have at one point. Um, I, I don't think I know which one you're referring to, but uh, maybe you'll you'll tell yeah, me. Yeah, let me see if uh, well, there's a great ad. Uh, let's see, there is a letter in here from one Mr. Don Wolheim. Yes, that's right. I, I do have a, a note about this right there. Yeah, so. Don Wolheim uh, wrote in a, a letter suggesting that uh, you should create a separate magazine for adventure stories, uh, which is a really interesting thing that he wrote a letter about that <laughs> for this for this issue. Um, and, yeah, actually, uh, you know, I'm looking at the image on your on your on the screen here, and I, I do see a lot of names like Bob Tucker. Um, you know, th these are people, Tucker, you know, also became a writer, but, you know, like these, these names persist over time. You know, I, I don't think anyone would have realized that Wolheim would have, was going to play as big a role in the history of science fiction uh, that, that he did, you know, based on, 
um, his his profile in the fan community at this point. He, he was known as kind of a troll, like a, a troublemaker. Um, right. And it's not until later on that he kind of becomes a more um, mainstream figure. Yeah, and the fact that Tucker um, is already starting his letter hacking, um, you know, antics in this is uh, kind of cute and uh, hilarious. Can I mention one thing really briefly? Um, oh, no, do go. Um, is that one of the things that I've, I've found really interesting about this issue, um, like beyond the publications of the, of the short stories, is that um, Tremaine, how Tremaine addresses his, the readers, um, so the editorial um of which is responding to like the letters like how much like the you know the pulp is uh, magazine is flourishing and what have you um which often mirrors the style of Gernsback um in his editorials where you know things are going great you know what have you um but also um in the editorial Tremaine kind of addresses um the reader like as a family so it's interesting to think through how Tremaine's already building this as like more of like a, a family magazine to get people interested in it rather than um, something that um, is just like a singular um, reader within a household. It's, you know, there, there's there's this attempt to build a more familial community based around this pulp magazine, which, um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Um, I, and I, hadn't read his editorials in this issue so that, that is a very good point to bring up uh okay so now the story twilight coming after an ad to stop constipation uh on the previous page uh and the ads in in these magazines are hilarious um look and i'm not picking on people from the 30s because if you look at ads from the 80s they're just as funny um and i'm sure people looking at ads from our era in the future will laugh too but twilight so a story well, can, can, can i just break in one yeah. really insidery thing that I, I like to mention is that at this point um all the ads were sold for all of street and smith's magazines as a whole you know they were not targeted at particular readers okay yeah and campbell i don't, I don't know about tremaine but campbell hated the ads you know they were kind of forced <laughs> on him and yeah it's like these like hemorrhoid creams and you know like things that he did not think were necessarily suited to his readership and it's not until yeah. i want to say the late 40s that he finally is able to get ads directed toward science fiction fans and and, and that, that that's a big change and it definitely like yeah. plays a part in building the market for um novels and, and hardcover for anthologies you know for a lot of things yeah and look you know I'm sure there are science fiction readers who had constipation issues. So some, somebody has got to use those ads. So, uh, all right. Twilight, the story, um, this awesome artwork. Um, I'm not, I don't think I noted who did the artwork, but, uh, I think it's Elliot Dold, if I recall correctly, I think, I think it's actually down there, um, in the caption. Yeah. I, I blew it up a little bit. Oh yeah. There it is. Elliot Dold. Then I saw the city of perfect machines. Uh, all right. And so the subtitle, uh, a story that will set you to dreaming of purple distances of far of a far off world, wherein a race is dying 7 million years away, 7 million years. You got to say it like that. I think <laughs> at this point. Um, so uh, yes, I've read this story before. I had that best of John W. Campbell uh, anthology that or collection that you uh, showed earlier. 
uh, which I got because of who goes there. Because I was a fan of the John Carpenter movie when I was a kid. I don't know what happened to that. I lost that book somewhere along the way or maybe traded it for something. But I do remember reading this story. However, uh, I read it so long ago that uh, I had a real emotional impact to reading it this time. Uh, and the other thing I did is I put on a reading of it, an audiobook reading of it, um, and followed along with the words on the page, which I don't usually do, but I was trying to get kind of a different experience than it was kind of uh interesting way to read it but uh my feeling on this story is my god is it so uh intensely um idea driven for 1934 i don't necessarily like the hitchhiker um setup because i don't think it really serves much of a purpose uh but i but i'll just give a quick synopsis if you haven't if you listen to this episode and you haven't read the story you really should do that um and it's free it's in the internet archive so uh, there's no excuse not to find it and read it uh the story sets up with on december 9th 1932 jim bendall a real estate agent is driving along and he picks up uh aries and kenlin i believe is it's pronounced and uh, he has this wild story of time traveling and that he has returned from the future. Uh, apparently his TARDIS was off too. <laughs> uh, that happens when you're time traveling. You're shooting for millions of years. You're going to end up, you know, maybe in 1932. Um, give or take a millennia or two. Um, but a 7 million year trip, uh, Campbell has mentioned that he was inspired by an H.G. Wells, uh, I believe, essay about uh, somebody traveling far to the future. Um, and, you know, he goes to this far flung future and he finds that the human race is gone and that the machines are kind of have taken over and they're doing their own thing. And it's this, you know, kind of trip to the future to see these things. I don't think you need to know more before we start the discussion. Um, uh, starting with Alec, like, uh, what, what, what place as you as a Campbell expert, what place does twilight you think hold in his lexicon? Cause I think it's his best story hands down who goes there has the most impact, but I think twilight is the best John W. Campbell fiction. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I mean, I would rank it like a bit below who goes there. I think I think that's my favorite Campbell story. Um, but it clearly is a major story, not just for the genre, but also for Campbell. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like you look at the stuff he was writing before this and, you know, there's a story of the last evolution, which kind of, you know, has similar themes. And um, there's a story called um, the Black Star Passes that has a, a few uh, sections that are kind of similar in tone. Um, but otherwise, like this kind of comes out of nowhere. Right. And and I think um, a lot of the credit goes to Donia. Um, another story that he cites as an influence is a novel called The Red God's Call by a guy named C.E. Scoggins, which um, so I, I actually have not read that entire novel, but I've read the first chapter, which is what Campbell cites as an influence. And it is actually very striking. If you're a Twilight fan, I would recommend reading that uh, chapter because um, the tone is very similar. I think it kind of awoke, uh, you know, something in Campbell to the possibilities of, of this melancholy tone. 
And there are also like some interesting parallels to the story. Um, Regards call starts with basically someone picking up a hitchhiker who is more than he seems. Um, he's sort of physically impressive and intelligent, and he sings a song that makes the person feel things that he hasn't felt in a long time. And he describes in this and in, in the Scoggin story going to Guatemala and seeing ruins there that are described in ways that I think. You can hear the influence, you know, in, in, in Campbell's description of these these cities. So, again, like, you know, it's interesting, right? Like that 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 story, I think he read that story was like, I can do something similar. I, I can do something similar in science fiction. And you could say the tone, as you say, you know, H.G. Wells, I think, did similar things. The time machine, this idea of a dying world and the kind of like the the, you know, melancholy at the awareness that things are going to change and that mankind, you know, might be diminished, you know, by um, in, in the far future. Um, but again, you look at the other stories that are being published at this time, other stories in the same issue of this magazine, and it is very different. And, and you can really see why it made such a big impact on, on readers at the, at the time. Yeah. And um, we, science fiction is filled with, you know, science fiction writers taking works of mainstream literature and using their uh, my favorite example, my favorite science fiction novel of all time, uh, Stand on Zanzibar by John Bruner, which is, uh, you know, a retelling or, or using the the stylistic method of, of Don pa- Passos' uh, American trilogy. You know, you could take these like mainstream works of, you know, sci-fi. I, it's crazy to hear that that sounds really directly influencing this piece of work, um, you know, Um Kate, you're, uh, you said that this was your first time reading this. So um, considering that, you know, Campbell has a pretty gnarly reputation, um, especially, uh, you know, for, for, you know, but a lot of younger science fiction fans, the first time they've heard of John Campbell was, you know, a speech, you know, uh, just, you know, absolutely roasting him. Um, it is curious for me because i read john campbell john w campbell for the first time before his reputation kind of went went south so i'm interested to know how it's different you know for for a younger um science fiction reader who comes to it from that perspective it's got to be a totally different perspective than 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 we had when we first you know read campbell uh, so what was your experience with this? Like your feeling like when you went into it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously like um, John Campbell, um, I'm not a John Campbell biographer that, um, you know, Alec um, has uh, done um, that sort of critical um, in-depth work. Um, so I feel a little bit uh, weird, you know, um, I'm, I'm, walking a fine fine rope here just to say what I'm, I want to say, but thinking through uh, the legacies of Campbell, um, you know, beginning like with, uh, you know, 1988 when, when Samuel Delaney, um, you know, talked about discrimination um, within the science fiction uh, pu- field of publishing, um, thinking through um, the renaming of the John Campbell Award um, and folks who have done um, a lot of bibliographic uh, and historical work on looking at the writing of science fiction um, and science fiction, um, science fictionality from um, diverse and inclusive perspectives. So it's, it, there's a lot there. Um, 
I will also say like the George R. Martin um, conundrum a few years ago with um, what was it at Worldcon where um, you know um, he, you know he spoke about um, Gernsback and all of these other folks um, and and that sort of um, people you know taking the task and, and critically engaging with that rhetoric. So coming into this again, like you know, uh, born and bred uh, feminist um, and um, reading through some of these works like Asimov, um, which is a whole nother can of worms in a certain way. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, no, and, and Kate, but that's one of the reasons why I wanted your opinion is because I didn't want it to just be, you know, those of us, because I do think it makes a difference coming from a time before Campbell, like, was written about, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we, he was just another name in a table of contents for me in, in the beginning. Right. So, but whereas I think where, where you're coming from is a younger researcher in, in this is that, you know, you're not coming at it with that. You're coming at it with, you know, the discrimination things that were a part of the community. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think Alex, you know, about that as, as well, like, otherwise you wouldn't have decided to go and write, like get in and do all that, that really sometimes yucky, terrible biographical work of having to go through the archives and read through like, you know, some just ridiculous and, and hurtful and, and weird things. And just, yeah, in a way, doing archival work in order to kill your idols. Like, wow, I can't believe Campbell said this. I can't believe, yeah. So I think approaching this, um, I tried to approach it from um, a very clear perspective, uh, not a biased perspective. Like I went into this um, thinking, okay, give it a shot, you know, see see what the, the language, um, prose style and, um, you know, themes. And I was kind of surprised, like, um, in, in reading through this um, and thinking through the sort of softness um, within the story in certain areas. Um, again, like, looking at, like, uh, technocratic innovations of the marvelous machine. Marvelous is repeated over and over and over again, sort of like an automatic um, form of, of, you know, describing the mechanization and technology, like, within this world. So... Um, that's a lot of, a lot of random thoughts. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that was my, um, sort of shock and like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me too, I think, um, you know, this particular reading of Twilight, I did have that baggage in my head. I also had the experience of reading Alex's book twice. Um, <laughs> um, well, I, I didn't have a highlighter the first time I read it, so I had to go back and highlight my, my, my uh, um, you know, the light highlights that you can see in there. Uh, so I had to read it twice, you know, um, but uh, the, the funny thing is, is having like learned the history of Campbell, um, it definitely gave me a different color reading it, but uh I will say for me, I went into this saying there's no way I'm going to think this is a better story than who goes there. I kept thinking like, you know, who goes there should be the one that should be in the science fiction hall of fame, even though it's, it's more of a horror story as well. I kept thinking that's the one that should be in the hall of fame. And then I came out of it saying, no, it's, it's the one that deserves to be in the hall of fame. And I, I'm wondering how you guys feel about that because 
I think it needs to be in the Hall of Fame just because of its revolutionary impact, because of how far into the future it goes. Because, yeah, Time Machine did that, but it was a little more surreal. And this story is a little more hard science fiction. Yeah. I mean, I will um, note that there are um, other volumes in this series, uh, you know, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame that cover novellas, longer works, and Who Goes There does appear there, I believe. Yeah. Um, this is mostly short stories. So, you know, maybe it got disqualified because of length. But, yeah. you know, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because, like, Who Goes There is vastly more famous, you know, um, it, again, like, because of the thing. Uh, it's, it's, I would say, 100 times more read than, than Twilight. Um, and probably a thousand times more read than any other, you know, Campbell story. Um, but Twilight, you know, um, it, it's funny now because like we are accustomed to this kind of story. I, I think there's a huge uh, line of science fiction stories that kind of come out of this tone and and these themes that Campbell, um, you know, kind of introduces into the pulps at least. But you know, at the time, not everyone liked it. Um, Isaac Asimov didn't like it. Uh, you know, he he talks about in his memoirs about how he read the story by Donnie Stewart. He didn't know who this was, and he was a Campbell fan, right? And so he didn't make yeah. the, the connection between their names until he actually went to meet Campbell. And uh, at that first meeting, he realized that Campbell was Donnie Stewart, uh, who had written Twilight and some other fiction that you know he wasn't f- fond of. So if you're like, a young fan during this period, maybe you do want these like big planet destroying you know super science stories. You know that that's kind of what you're used to reading, and and, and that this story. Twilight is kind of an outlier. It's it's very different from what you're used to. And, you know, it takes time for readers as a whole to kind of come around to the way the genre is changing. Okay. But, but clearly like it's, it's an incredibly productive line of fiction, right. To question technology's um, impact on um, individuals, on societies, you know, and it, the fact that it comes from Campbell is, is fascinating because he's not someone you think of necessarily as being a person who is questioning these things. Um, you know, he is very much, at least in the kind of capsule version of his his career, seen as someone who was a uh, technologist, someone who championed the problem-solving side of fiction, of, of science fiction. But, you know, clearly in, in this story and some other stories, he, he's questioning it, you know, in, in ways that will be as influential and maybe more important, you know, in, in a lot of ways than the stories that we tend to associate with his name. Right. Well, and, and I think with, um, you know, th- this series, the stories were voted upon in an era when, you know, that discrimination and sexism was still a part of the community. And I think if we, especially in light of Professor Yazik's like Futures Female books, for one thing, we, we've got a lot more stories that if we were to look back now and, and try to develop our, our Hall of Fame, like I can't believe as somebody who has recently, you know, done a whole podcast series on the 30s and looked really closely at 30s science fiction that um, C.L. Moore's Chamblot is not in there. Now, you could easily look at that story and say it's a horror story, but it's science fiction as well. And yes, it has a vampire in it, but I think like Chamblot is 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 as mind blowing a story from this era as, as, as these two stories from the thirties at the same time, uh, you know, mountains of madness is a novella, but you know, Lovecraft probably has stories in there that uh, color color out of space, for example, could easily be in here. Um, 
but the science fiction right this the, the science fiction writers that were voting on this a lot of them you know had their they had their favorites and it comes down to voting less so than um the actual achievement and i, I do think twilight has both where you had some of the people who were voted because campbell gave them careers but you also have a story that just really did something nobody had done before, which I think you could argue that there's the Wells speech and there's the time machine, but the way he did a hard science fiction version of 7 million years in the future. And well, I wasn't a big fan of the framing device. It, it, it adds a certain literary flair to it. So, um, and, but, and and it will, it will also add, you know, the fact that it appeared in a in a magazine uh, is a big deal, right? Like yeah. you could say that, that Wells was doing this stuff, you know, long before Campbell did, but the idea that this had a place in pulp science fiction in, in, in this particular market, you know, was was a big deal. All right. Well, um, I'm getting. I, we've already been going for an hour, so I I want to uh, start uh, kind of wrapping up. But I know, um, it, you know, there's a we have a lot to say these days about, you know, Campbell and his impact. And, you know, obviously I would point people to your book, uh, Astounding, uh, by Alec Neville Lee, which has a history, not just of John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, uh, but also, uh, L. Ron Hubbard and some fun stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people probably thought that L. Ron Hubbard would be your favorite to write about or Asimov who you're deeply kind of connected to, but Campbell was the one that you most enjoyed reading and researching about. What was it about Campbell that made him so interesting for you, Alex? Because, you know, considering how controversial he is now, it's kind of a funny position for, I, I know that puts you in a weird position, right? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's a it's a position that I kind of have made for myself um, because Campbell, I mean, it, it, it's hard to recall this. So it suddenly came out in, in 2018, right? And at the time, you know, Campbell was unexplored territory. There had not been a biography of him, right? And, and that's one reason I chose him over Asimov and um, Hubbard and Heinlein, you know, because, you know, if you want to read a two-volume Heinlein biography, there is one, right? There's tons of stuff about Hubbard out there, you know, that, that's very good. Um, and Campbell you know, had never really been considered in like this form before where someone like just went through his whole life and talked about his influence and his personal life, which is fascinating. So, you know, I mean, it was, he was available, right. You know, and he was yeah. clearly a major subject. He was clearly a fantastic subject for this kind of book. Um, But, you know, it, it's, it's funny, like uh, Campbell to me, um, I clearly have very complicated feelings about him. Um, To me, he is a case study. To me, he is an incredible case study. Um, and, and I think people often assume that you must like someone to devote years of your life to writing a book about them. I don't think that's necessarily true. You have to find them interesting, right? And Campbell, to me, is so interesting because yeah. there are things that he did that I admire enormously. I mean, I do think he was a genius in certain ways. I do think that um, you know he did things that no one else could have done um, and that his influence on science fiction is, is huge. But also... Um, you know, like he, it, it's unclear to me whether science fiction is better because he he was there when he was. It's different, 
you know, sign, there, there's, yeah. there's a famous line in, in, in The Power Broker by Robert Caro where he says, you know, you, you can't say that New York City would be a, a better city without uh, Robert Moses, but it'd be a different city. And that's kind of how I feel about, about Campbell. It'd be a different city if he had never existed. Um, well, look, and I, think, and I feel for you because I'm the same way with PKD. Like, you know, I'm straight edge. So like the idea of some of my friends are like the guy who did all those drugs is the one that you're interested in. But for me, it's a case study. It's like the it's this weirdo dude who barely finished high school in Berkeley, who's a direct opposite of his senior classmate, Le Guin, who was Harvard educated. And they both got nominated for the Hugo Award in 1974. And their two life stories couldn't be more different is one of the most fascinating things for me. To, to see it's the case study so i see that with campbell i, yeah. I totally relate to you on that you know and, and twilight's a good place to start because you know it it, it it illustrates his good qualities you know i mean I, I think there's incredible talent there that um certainly by the end of his life had been misdirected you know i think it's like maybe the mildest way of putting it but it's not a tragedy it's not interesting if you don't acknowledge the the other part of that story like the strengths that were there and the intelligence that was there you know that um you know got turned into directions that i think were unfortunate but that were kind of implicit in the positive stuff at the beginning right yeah. and i think you have to look at the whole story to kind of see you know the pattern that that it makes well and i know you've mentioned to me before in different contexts of where we're talking and i've read your book so i know his wife's influence, but uh, it, it was really fascinating. I think uh, part of the discussion is 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 Donna's role in 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 Campbell, you know, because I think her hidden hand in, in all this, especially the steady like the fact that she was reading Slush Pile in the '30s. Like, think about how much of science fiction is formed by the fact that she was like kind of this hand, you know, and this happens throughout, you know, Gene Roddenberry gets all the credit for Star Trek, but who invented the Federation is DC Fontana, you know, um, a lot of the uh, ins and outs of Vulcan culture, uh, DC Fontana, you know, and um, she never forgave him because especially on TNG, she and, um, David Gerald played a huge role in developing TNG and they got cut out by his lawyer and she never forgave him for that. And it's an interesting position for Donna Stewart or Donna, you know, his wife, because she um, uh, played such a role in finding out a lot of these authors. How many of these authors were ones where she read a story and plopped it on his desk and said, by the, by this story by or talk to this Isaac Asimov kid when he comes in story's yeah, not I mean, ready but you can talk to him when he leaves his candy shop <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a great question and unfortunately you know a lot of that stuff um we'll never know you will never know because uh you know I I I, I use letters right letters are, are my my major source and obviously Campbell was not writing letters to Donia when they were married um and so there was a huge missing piece there that um you know, I, I really hope someone is able to to fill in one day. Right. Uh, maybe with a time machine and uh, <laughs> a listening device. Uh, but uh, Kate, uh, your thoughts on overall on this experience of of 
Um, and you're a researcher, so I'm sure you didn't just read this story. I'm sure you did a lot of research around it. Um, you know, how did this experience of reading Twilight affect you? Yeah, I think um, just in terms of um, thinking through like uh, the division between right, like author and text. Um, like, I don't want to go into like critical, um, you know, waxing poetical about um, crit theory and late crit and all that, that other sort of stuff about death of the author and the text as own individual. I'm going to skip all of that. But I think reading through this story and thinking through the biographical aspects of um, Campbell's life um, is, is really fascinating. And also thinking through that hidden hand aspect of, of, you know, um, you know, did um, the wife like, you know, mirror or engage in the sort of like, you know, um, racism and anti, you know, semitism and what have you, or, you know, was there pushback? And I think that there, there are larger conversations about that, that, you know, um, that are, that's really interesting to, to research. Um, I will say that um, Andre Carrington, um, uh, his work on um, speculative blackness, looks at science fiction fan cultures um, in the 1930s. The, the first chapter looks at science fiction fan cultures, the 1930s and the 1950s. And talks a little bit about, you know, like the racism, anti-Semitism, and um, sexism within these cultures, um, within science fiction fan cultures. Um, so um, just thinking through the sort of space that, you know, Campbell and others were in. And um, it, yeah, I just, I find it all, all super fascinating. And I could talk about it for another hour. So I'm going to cut myself off right now. Yeah. Um, well, no, and we, I appreciate it. And, and the thing, the fact of the matter is, is that we know eventually, like, for example, the Judith Merrill pushed back and, um, you know, that there was, you know, one of the reasons why Wolheim, like, was never like, you know, he was considered a troll. But one of the reasons he's considered a troll is that he was also politically active for the 30s and, and, and already didn't like Campbell's politics. He wasn't one that was going hanging around Campbell's office because he thought he didn't like him. Then he didn't like his politics, right? And uh, you know, we're learning more about that now. Uh just, you know, that the, you know, we've we've learned that, you know, more about Wolheim and, and cross dressing and and how he was like hiding a, a bit of who he was and and lashing out at the people around him too because he was trying you know living this hidden life and you know so there's all kinds of interesting things about like these people from this era that it's funny because some people who think that there wasn't radical thoughts or things going on or that the community wasn't having the same kind of squabbles as we're having now, they were it's just happening slower because it was happening in the letter section at the back of magazines. And, yeah, um, and go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Just a, but you know, thinking through hard SF, hard science fiction, golden age, all of these other, you know, sort of like big, massive um, terms that represent you know very different um, historical iterations of media, like hard SF, um, you know, uh, yeah, all of that 
is is very much you know a node to John Campbell. So you know we can't necessarily throw the baby out with the, in the bathwater. Like there you know there are ways that we have to engage with this, even though it feels yucky and gross. And again, thank you, Alec, for doing like all that good scholarly gross work that makes you want to shower after being in the archive. Um, yeah, no, there, there's plenty of that. Um, but no, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and I do think that um, the conversation around Campbell is actually just getting started. I think there's a lot of stuff there that we haven't even talked about, not just here, but like as a community that I think is worth, you know, getting at one of these days. Yeah. And the cool thing is, is that, you know, um, and we as three researchers, uh, you know, I want to put a shout out there to the archivists because that because this era, everything happened in archives. And now also young writers keep all your files because the digital archives of the future is going to be the things that the future uh, historians are going to be digging through. And, you know, for example, for horror writers, they have the uh, at Pitt, University of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, you know, Pitt wants to be the home for horror archives in the future. They're building themselves as that for a reason. But these archives, the John W. Campbell papers, as Alec could tell you, are all over the place, just like the PKD papers, mostly at Fullerton, but some at Riverside, some um, locked behind their uh, state's lawyers office doors unfortunately uh, but the archives are out there and you can find this stuff and uh for researchers who really want to dig into these things the, the letters are fascinating and they're it's really fun uh to dig through the archives and um it gets you out of the house too so yeah, I mean, whenever I whenever I talk about any of this stuff, I'm always like, please write more biographies. I, I think, you know, the lack of really great science fiction biographies is a huge problem. And especially now that a lot of the people that you would, you would interview are, 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 you know, are gone or, or on their way out. Um, and you have to fall back on these archives. But there, there are incredible stories there that, um, you know, someone somewhere needs to needs to work on. Yeah, and I will put a shout out. I'm not the one to do this because I'm not a giant Dune nerd. But for example, just if anyone's listening out there and you're a huge Dune nerd, Fullerton has all of the straight out of the typewriter drafts, first drafts of Frank Herbert's Dune, right? And they're filled with red pens and giant sections that are cut out and no one's written about it. And I've seen it. I've been there. I've had that thing in my hand. And when I saw how much was cut out, I, I said to myself, I'm not the person to write this, but somebody could do a book about the lost dude. Like, because there are entire sections of Duncan, Idaho that were too cheesy to make it to the book, but it's fascinating when you look at it. And these are things that we have access to because everything was done in hard copy. Right. And like you know they weren't going back on a word processor and immediately deleting so he was red penning this stuff and it's out there so you know that's my last shout out on that um all right so uh kate and alec this was great i love talking about john w campbell i do think he is a fascinating interesting character um i think uh alec your book is awesome uh i read it twice for a reason kate i am very much looking forward to your work and finding out uh, uh, more about what you did for your postdoc, which you're wrapping up. How can people find you, Kate, if they want to um, follow your work and what you do? Uh, so 
That's a good question. You can just email me at uh, ACA, A-C-A, FEM, F-E-M-M-E, FAN, F-A-N, at gmail.com. Um, yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Kate, uh, you're you're doing uh, your postdoc is on your your doctorate is on what exactly? Because yep, so uh, my doctorate is on. It, <laughs> <laughs> so my doctorate is uh, I'm finishing up. I'm in the last stages of of finishing up my thesis right now, which looks at women in science fiction fandom in the post war era. Um, the one chapter of my thesis um, was published in Foundation. The International uh, Review of Science Fiction that won the Peter Nichols Prize. I've also written on um, fan fiction for the Rutledge Handbook of Star Trek. Um, I served as an Arthur C. Clarke uh, judge for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Um, and I mostly write about um, the history of um, science fiction and fandom. So that's my little soapbox academic spiel. Um, you can email me or look me up on the interwebs. Yeah, okay. I, I when when we get done recording, I have something that, uh, I want to. I have something I want to share with you on uh, Star Trek fandom. But uh, Alec, um, how do the folks find your work? Yeah, your most recent book was on Buckminster Fuller. Um, that was an intense book. Uh, <laughs> that had to take an insane amount of research. So, how long did you work on that one? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I would say three years total, which is less time than it needed. Um, it was it was quite insane to get that book out in three years. Um, but um, you know, I, I write full time. I don't have like a backup plan, so I kind of have to get through these things quickly. I, I don't have ten years to work on on a book like that, even though yeah. you know I, I would love that at some point. Um, but yeah, people want to look me up. Um, I'm currently taking a social media break, which is going great. Um, but um, if they look me up online, you'll find my blog. It's one of the first uh, results on Google. And there's a contact page there um, that people can use to email me. And, and I definitely welcome any you know contact like that whatsoever. Yeah. And the book is astounding. Definitely. Uh, if you found this episode interesting, you'll probably find that interesting as well. Um, I'm David Agronoff. If you got this far, I've you probably listened to my whole series, but my latest book is The Last Night to Kill Nazis. And I do want to put a shout out out there. Uh, I'm working on doing an event about scientific or science fiction research um, in Bloomington, Indiana, the day before my hometown, the day before the solar eclipse. So if you I'm also doing a book release party for my next science fiction novel called People's Park that takes place in Indiana. And so I'm. Off, I'm suggesting to people, if you want to come to the release party for People's Park, it's in Bloomington the day before we are one of the best places to watch the total solar eclipse in the country. So you can make a twofer trip. You can also nerd out the Ray Bradbury Center is in Indianapolis and they have recreated Ray Bradbury's office. All of his library is there in the center. And they use pictures to put it on the shelf exactly how he had it, which is not in any like logical system, by the way. But the desk where he wrote almost all of his books is there. And the chair he sat in to write almost everything is there. And you can sit in it. And <laughs> like, because um, I didn't know this, but Indianapolis, IUPY was the home to one of uh, the biggest uh, Bradbury experts on the planet. 
And so we also have the Kurt Vonnegut Museum in Indiana. So what I'm suggesting is you, you do all these things and then watch solar eclipse. It's, so, and uh, I will obviously be there promoting my new, my science fiction novel, People's Park. And uh, that comes out and that is April 7th and 8th. So folks, if you're interested, come find me there. But my book, The Last Night to Kill Nazis, is available nationwide at Barnes and Nobles, or it's supposed to be soon. But I'm asking people, if you do not see it on the shelf at Barnes and Nobles, ask them, because that helps me um, get it out there. And that's if you hate uh, Nazis, but like vampires, it's a perfect book for you. The Last Night to Kill Nazis. So thank you, folks. Um, Alec and Kate, thank you for joining me and talking about John W. Campbell's Twilight. Um, next up in the series is Helen O'Loy by Lester Del Rey. And our guests will be Robin uh, Murphy of Robotics Through Science Fiction, Professor Lisa Yazik, and Brian Collins of Sci-Fi Remembrance. So um, that's going to be um, a pretty good panel. And I have a feeling Lisa Yazik is going to have a lot to say about the gender roles in that story. Um, so uh, she was very insistent that she wanted to be on that episode. Because <laughs> uh, I uh, said, hey, are there any you want to be on? And she was very insistent on that one. So I have a feeling she has a lot to say. And I'm really looking forward to that one. And on that note, uh, folks, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Um, I'm sure both Kate and Alec will be back in future episodes of this series. I would love to have Kate back for Judith Merrill's Only a Mother. And Alec told me you really want to be on Cold Equations, right? Oh, yes. Uh, that'll be a barn burner when we talk about the Cold Equations. <laughs> yes. Oh, Kate, are you saying you're interested in that one, too? Yes, absolutely. I oh, my gosh. All right. Well, we might have a reunion then in a couple, uh, probably nine months or whatever we get there. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, that should be a good one. All right, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us and uh, keep reading science fiction and keep the history alive. Thanks.